Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my partner is Chen Lin, uh, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, and Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, are also um, newsletter writers, and you can avail yourself to their services uh, by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. And uh, we do have uh, low-cost trial subscriptions for each of those letters separately. You can call uh, my assistant, boss, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or again, going to miningstocks.com. Also, go to jtaylormedia.com to access this radio show and uh, all three newsletters as well as uh, other things that I do from time to time, videos and television appearances, etc. Also, you can follow me on Twitter under the handle Silverstocks. We uh, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Uh, for today's first hour, our sponsors are Eurostar Gold Corp., Liberty Star Resources, and Airway Energy. And, of course, we want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to pass along a word or two about our sponsors today, but first I want to talk about why we have sponsors mostly in the gold mining sector. We also, from time to time, have had some in the energy sector, as we do now, uh, Airway Energy. Uh, and we've had some uranium mining companies at t- uh, from time to time as well in the past. But this show does attract sponsors that are very much in tune with the general theme of this show, which is focused on free market Austrian economics. Free market economics requires free market for money as well as everything else. And that's where I think everyone, uh, where we've gone wrong, really. And and, uh, people who are generally free market orientated, like Milton Friedman, for example, do not see or has not seen, and most of the monetarists do not see the need for the public to be able to choose what they use as a medium of exchange. When you think about it, every half of every transaction involves money virtually, and so uh, we are restricted from one half of all of our activities, essentially, by fiat money, money by law, not by choice of, uh, of the people. And this is really uh, what may be an unpolite way of putting it, but a bastardization of the dollar, because the dollar was, according to the Constitution, supposed to be defined by a certain amount of gold and silver. So this this uh, messing around with the dollar that we are forced to use not uh, only uh, an instrument it is not, it is not only an instrument of um, not our choosing as a free market participants but it is also uh, an instrument whereby politicians and bankers uh, essentially create counterfeit money just like criminals have done and continue to do when they get away with it 
but of course they made it legal uh, by force of law to essentially reallocate wealth from those that produce it, the miners, the manufacturers, uh, the, the farmers, the inventors, people that actually create wealth for us are getting their wealth taken away from those that control the money supply, the, uh, the, the currency that we have now, which is not the currency chosen by markets but by governments uh, and by the bankers, of course, for their, uh, for their own selfish ends. Um, in order for, to create money in our fractional reserve banking system that we have now, uh, we, we are really creating, it is really debt money. Unlike asset-based money, unlike gold and silver, what we have is money that is uh, created out of debt. So whenever you take out a loan, you've done your part to increase the money supply. And through the fractional reserve banking system, that's how it works. Well, we have created money like never before, especially since 1971 when Nixon removed the, uh, shut the gold window. Then all, there appeared to be no limits to the amount of money that could be created out of thin air by our policymakers. And so the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world created money like mad. And if you look at the uh, debt levels, uh, the tremendous debt levels now in the United States, levels uh, relative to GDP far and away greater than in the worst of the Great Depression, we are seeing an insolvency problem in the Western world like we have never seen it uh, before. And this is, uh, I think, showing that there are, in fact, limits even to fiat money. Uh, now, there are those that suggest that they could actually print money and drop it out of helicopters, but as A. Gary Schilling pointed out on this show not long ago, we don't print money here. We put uh, money into the banking system, and then it needs to be lent out. But it isn't being lent out because just like the 1930s, uh, we're finding out there are insolvent borrowers, and so the banks cannot lend. They will not lend, and the banks themselves remain insolvent because the policymakers have not allowed the banks to are the markets to work and to cleanse their portfolios of all that junk that's in there, uh, those loans that cannot be repaid. And so the system, uh, the policymakers are trying to keep the system uh, going on forward as it is. Well, all of this, though, the world is clamoring for gold. And as has happened in the past when we've had these major credit deflations, the world demands gold. And how do I know that that is true? How do I know that that is happening right now? Well, as I talk about on this show many, many times, we are seeing uh, the real price of gold rise very dramatically, and this has really taken place since Lehman Brothers. Again, just to go back to the picture, pre-Lehman Brothers in July of 2008, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, which is a basket of commodities heavily weighted towards energy for sure, but it also has copper uh, it has all the base metals, it has food items, it has clothing items in there as well. So it is a, uh, as Jimmy Rogers says, it was created to measure the cost of staying alive. So in July of 2008, an ounce of gold would have purchased 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. But by March of 2009, it exploded to 44%. An ounce of gold's purchasing power rose very dramatically, and so the real value of gold was obscured by a gold price that didn't rise very much from March of 2000, or, or I should say from uh, July of 2008 through March of 2009. In fact, for a while, the gold price actually declined nominally. But in real terms, it exploded in purchasing power. And this is very, very important because as Bob Hoy has pointed out, historically looking back, this is probably the sixth major credit deflation in the last 300 years. And each and every time when this has occurred, each and every time when this has occurred, uh, the real price of gold, that is in what an ounce of gold would buy in terms of a basket of commodities, has risen for a period of 10 to 15 years. Now, this has started, or I think Hoy talks about 15 to 20 years. So this started in 2007 when the real price of gold rose. Forget the nominal price. We had a nominal price of gold from $250 or so in 2003. It rose over $1,000 a few years back before uh, Lehman Brothers. But at that time, the mining companies weren't doing well at all because the cost of production, the cost of all those materials in the Rogers Raw Materials Fund were going up faster than the price of gold was going up. Not so since the credit crisis began in 2000 and, uh, 2008 with Lehman Brothers. 
now more recently, the price of gold relative to the Rogers Fund uh, with the height of the recent problems in Europe rose to 49.5%. It is now currently at 44%. It's backed off a bit. Uh, I haven't checked today before I've gone on the show, but it did rise yesterday. And uh, as we've seen, a good example yesterday, let me just mention this. Yesterday, I think the uh, the price of gold was down three-tenths of one of 1%, and oil was down 3%. So there's a tenfold decrease in the price of oil relative to gold. Now, of course, gold didn't go up against the dollar yesterday, and gold has been very stable against the dollar um, trade in a trading range now for quite some time. I do believe that we could see an explosion in the gold price for reasons uh, that are not necessarily economic, but in fact, I believe that the paper market in gold and silver far surpasses anything, any physical delivery capability. Now, people go out and and they gamble or they buy, or they uh, invest or gamble, however you want to put it, uh, in the futures markets. They can uh, bet on rising or lowering prices and just simply gamble, or they might be hedging their positions in one way or another by going to the futures markets. And those futures markets, uh, almost most of the people never take delivery of those. They just basically go in uh, and, and, um, and use it as a hedge or go in and make a profit or take a loss and then get out of the paper, or they roll those, those contracts over. Well, the, um, uh, that, uh, of course, if, if people decide that they want to take delivery, if more and more people decide they want to take delivery, the fear is that there's just not enough gold out there to satisfy those demands. And the same holds true in silver. And if this is the case, then we could be looking at something, uh, an explosion in the price in nominal terms as well as real terms for gold and silver. And this is what I believe is really very, very possibly going to happen. Uh, I think uh, the words of Rick Rule last week were very important. Rick talked about the, uh, the need uh, about how he believes that the gold mining sector is ready to really take off we're start, starting to see fundamentals of exploration over the last 10 years come into play, and, and the gold mining sector is looking very positive at the very time that the gold shares have really been taken to cleaner, cleaners and are down very, very big. Well, we're going to be talking to Doug Grow at about 4 o'clock today. Doug Grow is the portfolio, the co-portfolio um, manager at the Tocqueville Gold Fund. Doug will be with us uh, to talk about his views of the gold mining uh, sector right now as well. And coming on uh, here at about 3.30, we are going to be talking again to Professor Luigi Zingales. Uh, we will pick up where we left off last week on the uh, a Capitalism for the People, his, uh, his excellent book on talking about uh, the things that he fears America is losing right now that pulled him into Italy, uh, from Italy to the United States where he could rise by his merits and hard work as opposed to, uh, to patronage and, um, and favoritism. So we're going to be talking to him, but before before that, in just a minute or two, as soon as we go to break, Chen Lin is going to be back with us. He was in uh, in Europe traveling there. We're going to get Chen's ideas of, uh, and his sense of what is going on in Europe based on his travels as well as a couple of his top picks. And then at the very end of today's show, uh, towards the end of today's show, Arch Crawford is going to be back with us again to talk about his views on the market. You know, Arch suggested in not only shorting the market, but he said he was taking a double down on the market by uh, by leveraging up on uh, shorting the market. We'll ask him about his views, why he is so bearish on the equity market, and does he feel the same about the gold and silver markets as well. Well, uh, so that's today's program. Uh, we've got an awful lot to talk about. I see uh, Chen Lin is waiting to talk. We do uh, need to go to a commercial break, and as soon as we come back, Chen Lin will be back with us now for the first time in several weeks. I'm really looking forward to this. You should, too. Don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. 
drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.euristargold.com for more information. Is your business ready to get started in social media? If you've already made that plunge, where do you stand right now? Are you using it to stay ahead of your competition? Or are you feeling a bit lost? Tune in to Social Media Pearls with host Shirley Williams. Shirley and her guest experts are here to answer your questions as well as focus on areas where you should have questions. It's everything you've always wanted to know about using social media for business. It's Social Media Pearls, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times, where I'm really pleased to have with me, again, my partner, Chen Lin. And uh, Chen has been traveling in Europe and uh, uh, Italy, Greece, and Spain, three countries that are very much in the news these days for all of the fiscal financial crisis that's going on. I should mention uh, before we say hello to Chen that Chen, uh, Chen's track record has been spectacular, and we've talked about it in the past, but looking at at the end of last month, he's turned that $5,400 investment back in January of 2003 into a little over $2 million at the end of last month. Welcome, Chen. Good to have you back. Thank you, Jay. Now, you just got back, uh, and it was a fun trip for you. It was your family. Uh, it was a vacation trip, for sure, but you were in Italy, Greece, and Spain. I mean, starting out with Greece, of course, uh, what do you you know what sort of sense did you get from from the mood over there i mean is there i, I would think you know we've seen uh, on television we've seen pictures of riots in in greece people uh getting very very being very very unhappy about the cuts that they're taking in their salaries and uh, loss of loss of work loss of uh, jobs at least uh what what can you tell us about your sense of what was going on and what is going on in europe right now yeah the Folks seems they know their country is in deep trouble. They just hope they, you know, they won't be the cut. Uh, you know, they try to hang on. I talked to some taxi driver. You know, we're really, really in deep trouble. And I went to the island of Greece. It's a beautiful island. You know, those uh, beautiful tourist place. Uh, seems reasonably calm. You know, there's so many tourists over there. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they just thinking, you know, it, if really Greece got kicked out of Eurozone, I'm sure a lot of people were buying property there. <laughs> it's just it's so beautiful, you know. This um, uh, the the it's just it's just unfortunate situation for 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 the people. You know, they I think they probably got used to the the system for too long, you know, and uh, they basically you know find use their future to finance their current uh, way of life, which is not sustainable. Yeah. Well, I've heard today on television they were talking about some really wealthy people selling some islands. I don't know if it was in Greece, but in various places, I guess, people, the, the really super rich people uh, also are maybe cutting back at times because they have to make sure uh, that they keep their priorities straight. So just wondering. So I guess the sense, though, among the common folks in Greece and places like that is, yes, we're in trouble, but I hope it doesn't affect me. Is that it? That's I, I get. You know, they know they probably will affect them, but but they don't have the sense of unity. You know, yeah. like help the country. I mean, for example, in Asia crisis, right? Uh, the Koreans actually gave their government their all their gold and silver, so they can use the collateral to borrow money. Yeah, that's, a, 
that the ordinary Korean people did, you know, to happen. Yeah. But, you know, in Europe, you know, nobody wants to say, oh, I don't want to, don't cut me, you know, I, yeah. I don't right. care other people, I don't, you know, I, I care less about the country. I right. I don't care about myself, my salary, my job. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, self-centered for sure, but I think it's also uh, policies that have been carried out by governments that have encouraged people to live that way and think that way for a long time. So, well, I, we'll see this play out, no doubt, but it is a very unsettling attitude. What's going on in Europe and, and in the United States, I might add, is, is very, very unsettling. Of course, I believe if we just left the markets work, we could probably get back to some sort of healthy growth again, but getting from where we are with everybody being protected to that point where people really face free markets and the reality of the marketplace as opposed to special privileges is a very, very painful, disruptive process. So I guess the politicians want to keep things going as as it is. Um, Chen, uh, so I want to have to ask you now, because we haven't talked to you in about a month or so now, you've been away on vacation, uh, what about a couple of your favorites? Mart Resources, I think, was your number one pick for a while, at least. And they did come out now, finally, and announce a $0.10 cent dividend uh, and also, um, I guess, a, a $0.05 five cent cent quarterly, quarterly dividend. Yeah. $0.05 cents quarterly, $0.20 cents a year dividend. Right. And the stock is selling late. Earlier today, I saw it was $1.35 or so. Is that where it's, where it's at now? Right, it's already X dividend, so uh, you need to add the ten cents on top of that. You know, before I left, it was around a dollar. Now it's uh, you know a dollar forty and yeah. ten. If you count the ten, it was doing remarkably well in this market. Uh, it, it will, you know, the things for Mart. I just sent out the alert to my subscriber today. Uh, you know, look at Mart. And most of the uh, North American dividend paying oil and gas company, they cannot sustain. The dividend is not sustainable at seventy dollar. Are you okay? Mart is sustainable at seventy dollar. Mart can continue to pay this dividend. Plus, they have extra cash put into their bank. Mm-hmm. Plus, next year they can double their, triple their production, and then potentially dramatically increase the dividend. So, if you and plus, right now it's paying about fifteen percent dividend mm-hmm. So on, on the current price, about fifteen percent. Chen, oh yeah, it, it's just incredible. In, still incredibly cheap. Yeah, Chen. What is your sense of how low the the oil price would have to go before they would stop paying, or before they couldn't pay a dividend? Let's put it that way. Oh, for them, their cost is like a couple of dollar. Okay, so the oil price may have to drop to fifty dollar. Something. Fifty dollars. I think I did so some calculation. Yeah, about forty fifty. Yeah. They are they they about break even the dividend and cash flow. Mm-hmm. Forty fifty about break even, mm-hmm. but you know North American oils and for example all these oil sands, um, I just heard on BNN is seventy dollar right below seventy dollar those oil sands they 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 are they are losing money, mm-hmm. so so they think about that you know that that yeah. that's uh, there are a lot of uh, you know this is a very low cost oil producer so it will do well in you know even with the fluctuation of oil price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, a, that's very interesting, very important to know that. What about Pan Orient? How does that one stack up? I know that's another one of your favorites, I think probably your second most favorite stock. Right, it did quite well. It went all the way to, to four point, almost 4.5, but in the past two days it pulled back a little bit, around $4.00. You know, when when I laugh, it's below four dollar. You know, consider market has been down so much. It, it held up really well. It was two dollar below two dollar when I was buying. Uh, you know, a lot of shares as mm-hmm. I telling my subscribers. So that's a few months ago. So you know, it, it did very well, remarkably well as well. Uh, right now, uh, the cash uh, it's about. 3.5, something about, about that. So it's, it's a company fully supported by its cash level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say, okay, you say they have all the cash, just squander all the cash. No, they are, have income-producing property, mm-hmm. still producing. They have, still have cash flow coming in, uh, which also land-based, uh, very cheap to drill, very low-cost producer. So mm-hmm. it, it just still has an incredible, incredible value. I mean, if it's not... The market, I think the stock would be much higher at this point. Yeah, and I think they are planning uh, a seventy cent dividend, or at least it has to be voted on by shareholders. Is that is that where that? Yeah, seventy five cent dividend. Yeah, my plan is I'm holding both. You know, I'm just waiting my dividend check. The first dividend check should become in in a week or two, mm-hmm. maybe uh, in early August, and then you know priority in a month or two, and then mm-hmm. the more regular dividend. I just use the dividend as my cash, you know, to, to buy other stocks. So that, that's 
that's my plan. Chen, we talk mostly about uh, resource stocks on this show, and uh, you have mostly resource stocks in your newsletter, but you've also picked up one uh, called Neptune Technologies. We've got just a couple of minutes left if you could talk to us about that stock. What is it uh, about that company you like? What do they do, and uh, why do you like them? Right. It, actually, it, I don't, you know, biotech is also my, my, my area. Okay, I got it from uh, a fund manager who was investing in Mart Resource. He got a pick from me, so he was very grateful. So he gave me his best pick in biotech. Mm-hmm. I studied it for a few months. I, I really like it. The part of it is um, it's a very, uh, uh, it, it has very, very good, you know, you can see, you can do some research on Creole oil. Okay, so uh-huh. the, the key product is Creole oil. It's a revolutionary product. It can re- reduce two bad cholesterol and increase one one good cholesterol. No other drug can do that. Okay, you can you have liver tour is twenty billion dollar per year drug. You know they expire. Yeah. They cannot do that. They mm-hmm. have um, you know fish oil. They cannot do that. They, they, all these uh, fish oil uh, as a prescription is one billion a year market. So you look at it, those are monster monster number, and then Neptune's market cap is like, so tiny. Uh, so so I just you know, plus they already have. Uh, Creole oil distribution, you know, they already have that set up. They already book our book for next year's revenue. So they have an existing business, and then they have this a huge upside, um, yeah. you know, uh, to, to, for for this. Uh, so that that's what I feel. You know, it, it's it's once probably once a while, you know, maybe so once or twice in your lifetime, uh, for a small investor like us, we can get into those kind of uh, opportunities because mm-hmm. if you have a compound, for example, in the biomedical world, before everyone know it, there were already some you know insider plus some fund already take over all the shares, sure. and then they go to IPO and then listed a few billion dollar you know, market cap. When you look at the Neptune market cap, right? So little, so. Uh, you know, for you know, for us, it, it's a it's a risky bet. Okay, biotech is risky bet. If it doesn't work, it will fall very hard. Mm-hmm. But however, the phase two trial is the end of the, this year. If it's successful, which they have done similar tests in Canada, was successful. Mm-hmm. They just need to repeat those tests. It's not mm-hmm. like rocket science because mm-hmm. those Canadian tests was not recognized by FDA, so they have to redo it again. Mm-hmm. Relative, I think it's relatively low, low risk, right? Mm-hmm. But, but then you know you you take a, you know, but still there's risk involved in this company. Mm-hmm. Well, the company does have cash flow. Uh, is cash flow positive now, Chen, or very close to it? Yeah, the, the company production side is Creole oil side is cash flow positive. Yes. And, but they use the money to to do the experiment, you know, to do the phase two test. So it's about even break even. So which is very good, you know. Sure. Uh, so they they are not burning money. They don't need to raise money for a while. But if they phase two become very successful, I think they probably will need to raise money. But that's next year's issue. I mean, the yeah. top price will be much much higher from now. So. Well, yeah, phase two is higher. You know, one of the issues that I would I wanted to ask you about Chen is uh, you mentioned Lipitor. The big pharma's uh, might there be some interference, or might they just decide to buy this little company out and put it on the shelf so that so that their technology doesn't compete with Lipitor, or might they um, maybe have some influence on the regulatory environment to keep to keep this little company from competing with them? Yeah, those are possibilities. I mean, I think uh, uh, because I mean, Lipitor already off patent. First of all, Lipitor just came out of patent. It's twenty billion. So for those pharma, they probably want to looking for a way to replace the lost revenue. I think that's probably the first priority. Uh, so, from, as an investor, I feel most likely would be they buy out this company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if they buy it out, hopefully, you know, has much, much higher than the current price. We got rewarded, and then we move away. I mean, all these small biotech are takeover, you know, play. So, yeah. I mean, that's the investor hoping for, I think, for buyout. I mean, you look at a Lipidor, a drug like Lipidor, it's so large, uh, these big pharmas could buy this little company now with, with you know, for nothing. Exactly. And, and exactly. And then their chemicals are better than Lipidor. There are a lot of tests. You can see the website, but right now it's not FDA recognized. Okay, they did yeah. test in Canada. It's very, very effective. Uh, even Incron's founder joined the company as a yeah. chief scientist. You know, think about his VP and chief scientist. He's the founder of Incron. 
Well, it is a very, 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 very interesting story for sure, Chen. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it sometime in the in the near future with you again. Unfortunately, we are out of time now, and we're going to be talking to Professor Luigi Zingales again. We're very happy to have him back. So when we go to break, uh, we'll be right back with Professor uh, Luigi Zingales. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.eurostargold.com for more information. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network the bottom line in business Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have back with me today University of Chicago Professor Luigi Zingales. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read his, uh, his bio to you. You can go to Voice America website to see it there. Uh, but I will tell you that he left his native Italy a number of years ago uh, in pursuit of academic success, which he certainly has had graduating from MIT and now a professor at the University of Chicago. He, he left Italy because he didn't want to, well, he wanted to succeed on the basis of his own merits and hard work. And uh, America has always promised us that. Uh, that has been one of the things that's made America great, which has given uh, people that uh, have come to this country uh, from other lands to come here and succeed. I think that is what has made America great. But Dr. Zingales has been concerned in his, in his excellent book, A Capitalism for the People, uh, he voices that concern about how we are losing that in America right now. So uh, that is one topic that we want to talk to him some more about today. But uh, I just want to say welcome, Professor Zingas, again, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. My pleasure. Really good to have you. I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the, you've also co-authored another book. Um, I think it was called Saving Capitalism from the Capitalist. Uh, just briefly, if you could, before we get into uh, your more recent work, could you just tell our listeners what was the main idea of that book? So that book uh, was uh, looking more at the rest of the world, and our question was why we don't see more uh, good capitalists around the world, and the answer was because uh, 
the capitalists themselves are trying to control the system and make it uh, uh, less competitive uh, and uh, less efficient. And uh, I think that uh, uh, 10 years later or nine years later, uh, I realized that, uh, unfortunately, the world was going the wrong direction. Instead of the rest of the world adapting to the, the good U.S. system, was the U.S. system adapting to the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. You know, we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago when you, was, when you were with us about the need for people like yourselves and other university professors to help people understand uh, and to teach this good ethics. And, and that's what you're talking about, people looking to influence government uh, th- um, for their own for their own gains at the expense of others. You know, I, I was traveling in Nevada a number of years ago with a bunch of financiers, and, and we were having a philosophical discussion over dinner about, about um, capitalism, and, uh, and I it was complaining about this very thing that you're talking about, crony capitalism, or as Gene Epstein calls it, capitalism, the notion of people influencing and keeping uh, markets from being free. And this gentleman from a leading financial institution said to me, but isn't that what capitalism is all about? Isn't capitalism about getting as much as you can and working as little as you can? And I said, no, by all means, no, no. That free market capitalism is exactly the opposite. You have to work extremely hard to survive and to hopefully prosper, but there's no guarantees. So uh, how do we? I think that unfortunately there is a lot of misconception of what capital is about, and there is yeah. an equation between capitalism and uh, a boundless pursuit of self-interest. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea that greed is good, uh, mm-hmm. which Adam Smith never said, and I think any serious scholar of free markets will reject. But never, nevertheless, has become popular and has become kind of uh, the expectation. Yeah, an excuse maybe for some people to engage in capitalism, meaning capitalizing on your own special interest or your own power or your own ability to influence or to buy out people at the expense of others. It is, to me, it is the antithesis of, of pure capitalism. It's, it's, it's a perverted form of capitalism that some people might call fascism even, with large corporate interests uh, interfering and in, in creating markets and uh, advantages for themselves at the expense of competition. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I think it is a form of fascism. And it says there is a political dimension of fascism. There is an mm-hmm. economic dimension of fascism. That's definitely the economic dimension of fascism. Yeah. And then uh, the guest I had on just before you came on, we were talking about a small little company, a Canadian company that's doing extremely well. And the fear that I have about that company is that it, its its product is competing with Lipitor, and perhaps the big guys can just simply buy them out for a song and a prayer and, and shelve them so that the people don't benefit from it. I, I mean, that's just a concern, and I, I, I don't know. I think you and I talked about uh, Big Pharma and your concerns, but it, it's not that big is bad. It's just that the guys that get big by, by perverting the marketplace and not allowing uh, open competition. Absolutely. And uh, I think that uh, I, I'm all for business uh, growing because they are successful. What I'm afraid is once they are big, they use their size to influence the political game more. That's what we need to be concerned about. Sure. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about an article you recently wrote uh, in the Financial Times that I happen to pick up as I'm a, a reader, an avid reader of the Financial Times, love the newspaper, think it offers a lot of great thoughts, uh, a lot of ideas. Um, and you talked about Glass-Steagall, and you said initially that you were very much you know, opposed to Glass-Steagall as a free market advocate, and of course Alan Greenspan was very much opposed to it. He testified time and time again why we shouldn't uh, why we should get rid of Glass-Steagall, and of course we did. Uh, for those that may not be familiar, and I think everybody is, but Glass-Steagall really was legislation that grew out of the 1930s depression that that sort of forbid, well, it did forbid commercial banks from being involved in higher risk businesses like investment banking and underwriting insurance and so forth, right? Absolutely. And so... And so we, and so deposit insurance came along about that time as well. And the notion was uh, that banks would be involved in taking deposits and making loans. And of course, in the old days, the banks in this country, uh, and to, to a certain extent, it's still true, but not of the money center banks, would actually know their customers and live in small towns and be able to sort of observe the the behavior of the people they were lending to. They really knew their really knew their borrowers. Uh, but in any event, we, we went into this um, 
you know, Glass-Steagall was created, and then why did we take it away? I think that uh, there, there are a lot of reasons why we took it away. In part is that the market became more developed, but in part is there was a huge political pressure to do so. Uh, we have to remember that uh, uh, what then was Citibank uh, bought out Travelers Group mm-hmm. uh, or merged with Travelers Group. And at the time this transaction took place, the two business could not remain together. Uh, but the CEO of the time said, oh, we had enough conversation with the Treasury to know that the law will change. <laughs> and uh, surprise, surprise, the law did change within a year. And surprise, surprise, who was the uh, Secretary of Treasury of the time, immediately after they stepped down, went and worked for Citigroup yeah. for a tremendous amount of money uh, with no line responsibility. Yeah. The Robert Rubin, I think you're talking about. Absolutely. Name names, yeah, for sure. So that's uh, nepotism or that's favoritism, that uh, American style. So Absolutely. We, so the law was changed. Alan Greenspan, of course, being a, an, uh, a follower of Ayn Rand, very much a free market advocate, at least uh, probably would subscribe to the notion that greed is good. Certainly Ayn Rand did. And uh, and so we had uh, this turn towards this, well, the mess that we've gotten ourselves into now it seems to me only fair and logical that if these banks are going to engage in extremely risky investment banking activity and insurance underwriting and so forth, uh, that then the taxpayers shouldn't be asked to bail them out. I think that this is the the most important consideration. And and I have to say that uh, I have uh, fought hard to try to bring uh, good regulation to this point. And uh, part of the reason why initially I wasn't sort of uh, so much in love uh, with Glass-Steagall is that I thought, and I still think, that there are better ways to deal with that problem. Unfortunately, uh, I realized that sometimes the best is the enemy of the good. And by insisting on something that uh, is uh, maybe more complicated for many people to follow, uh, I think that uh, I was undermining uh, the, the fundamental point, which is the one you make, that we want to uh, protect deposits and protect taxpayers. And, and one simple way to do it is Glass-Steagall. is by no means perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, again, I think sometimes trying for the best is really undermining uh, a pretty good outcome. Yeah, I think uh, I think you said something like we must not allow the perfect to become the enemy of the good. So uh, to use to quote you in the Financial Times article, could you uh, well what sort of um, give give us the give us the five reasons or the five reasons why you you named uh, that you believe that Glass-Steagall should be put back into effect. Yeah, so, so the, the first one is, is uh, precisely the one we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is sort of uh, that uh, the simplicity. Remember that the Glass-Steagall was only 37 pages. The act it introduced was only 37 pages long when uh, the so-called Volcker rule is uh, by itself 298 pages. Mm-hmm. And it's really very, very, very hard to implement. Uh, I have a, the, the deepest respect for, for Paul Volcker. I think he uh, was well-intentioned when he proposed it. However, I think that uh, it's very hard to uh, implement this rule. And to some extent, my fear is that it's been adopted precisely because it's not implementable. So uh, you appear to cater to a public that is more and more uh, concern about banks, uh, but de facto you are sort of uh, playing in the hands of banks who know that uh, this is not going to be effective. Yeah, I think, uh, as I recall, Paul Volcker talking maybe shortly after the crisis or a while after the crisis of 2008-2009, really favoring a return to Glass-Steagall. Do you think he just decided that that wasn't politically doable and he decided to go for something less? Yeah, I think that, uh, again, uh, sometimes, uh, especially when you are in politics, you have to compromise. And when you see that the most extreme position has no chance of being adopted, you try to to compromise for a more doable one. Uh, Unfortunately, I think in this case, uh, the compromise was too much in the opposite direction. Yeah. A third reason uh, that you gave uh, had to do with... um well, I think sure. with, with the liquidity of markets, uh, this is sort of uh, a speculation that I make, but I think it's, it's an interesting speculation. If you look at uh, the period in which markets develop in the United States, both the public equity market and the market for 
options and the market for future was appeared during Glass-Steagall. Uh, why? Because when uh, the, the banks are not too powerful, uh, you have a lot of traders and markets develop. Now, as the Glass-Steagall was removed, then you have that all these new derivatives started to be traded over the counter. And honestly, even the public equity market is in a major period of uh, uh, demise because fewer and fewer companies uh, want to go public and they end up being traded in this opaque over-the-counter market. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, this is something that uh, is detrimental to the development of the economy. And uh, I think that uh, it was probably a good side effect of Glass-Steagall uh, to, to have a, a development of uh, public markets. And I think that uh, public markets are more transparent, uh, less opaque, and also more democratic. I am concerned of a world in which uh, some deals are available only to each individuals who trade mm-hmm. sort of uh, in private equity markets. And uh, the ordinary folks who invest their 401k, they're left with uh, literally leftovers. I think that this is uh, uh, both uh, not good from an economic point of view and not good from uh, a, a political point of view. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I can look at some of these derivatives like uh, some of these triple, triple down, uh, triple uh, inverse uh, instruments and they move so fast and somebody has some probably probably a lot of people that are really moving these markets really fast they're highly liquid but they are uh, artificial markets they're derivative markets and they probably people with some some very sophisticated mathematicians are writing these these programs to trigger these guys in and out of these markets and for common folks just certainly can't keep up with that what raises another question one of the things that I've noticed uh, uh, Dr. Zingales, is that uh, a lot of really bright people have left uh, the kinds of industries that really create wealth to game this system on Wall Street. And I'll give you examples of one person I know who was a, had finished medical school uh, and had gone to the top universities. I mean, uh, I, I can't remember which ones, but the top universities. And he decided that the medical profession wasn't someplace he wanted to go to these days. He could do a lot better uh, running a hedge fund with with someone else, uh, another person I know who decided he wasn't going to continue on with his doctorate program uh, in aeronautical engineering at Princeton instead has made a lot of money in the markets, uh, done extremely well in the markets, just using his brains to game the system. Now he hasn't, as far as I can tell, produced any wealth. He has basically found a way to pick the pockets of maybe the people that are creating the wealth and put it into his own account. I don't blame him for it. I think the market signals are there for that. But why do you think that's happening, if you agree that it is? I think that's, that's a very good question. I'm always being sort of uh, a bit uh, reluctant to jump to this conclusion. In general, mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, the prices are good signals. So if uh, there is uh, a very high return for individuals to move into finance, uh, means that there must be some uh, value added that finance creates. And, and I think that uh, finance does create a, a lot of value added, not only in terms of uh, the actual financing, but also in terms of information it aggregates. However, there might be situation in which uh, uh, the return to individuals become excessive uh, because uh, the market is not very transparent, because these people get some form of subsidies, and, uh, and so people move massively into the wrong sector. And uh, my natural inclination is not to uh, tax or prohibit. Uh, this is more like the leftist approach. My natural inclination is to try to sort of uh, clean up the market so that actually market signals are correct. And so uh, this uh, too-big-to-fail subsidy is a, a huge subsidy that goes to the financial industry, but I don't think it's captured very much by the investor in the financial industry. It's captured by the uh, players in the financial industry, the, ma- the managers and uh, uh, the, the sort of hedge fund managers. So I think that uh, we need to make sure that uh, uh, this subsidy is not in place so that uh, the return in those sectors become uh, less uh, outrageous vis-a-vis the rest. Yeah. Well, um, getting back to the Volcker rule or to the Glass-Steagall move, there doesn't seem to be any, any sense that we're going in that direction, is there? I think that actually uh, from a 
public point of view, there is more and more, more demand for it. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, every week, unfortunately, uh, there is a new scandal in the banking sector. And yeah. uh, every new scandal is creating a uh, higher and higher level of resentment. So uh, I don't think that uh, uh, we are not going to see changes in the future. The question is uh, what changes we are going to see. And uh, this is a bit uh, sort of the theme in my book. I I think that, unfortunately, there are a lot of economic conditions that suggest that we are prone to have a lot of populism. And the question is, uh, what form of uh, populism we are going to see? And uh, I would like to channel this resentment toward a more educated and constructive form of uh, populist reaction than uh, the usual one. Yeah. I would like to ask you if you if you have some opinions as to how we've the Western world has gotten itself into this mess, and I guess that's a probably a long topic for just a couple more minutes left on the show. But it seems to me if we go back and look at enormous creation of money and credit that has resulted in indebtedness that is far greater uh, as a percentage of GDP in the United States. If you take total total debt, that is not just government debt, but total debt, private sector, all sectors, private and public. Uh, we're looking at levels that, that far exceed even the worst of the Great Depression. And Europe, I, I guess, is in, in critical shape as well. You've focused a lot on, on these uh, disparities and lack of a free market um, uh, mechanisms that have hurt, certainly have hurt Europe a lot. But how did we get ourselves into this mess? Actually, I think there are two simple things. The first one is... Uh, uh, our sort of population growth has gone down. And uh, traditionally, we have learned since basically World War II that in a very easy way to create consensus is by giving away entitlement in the future. And as long as there is a very healthy population gro- growth, that cost of the entitlement is not very big because it's spread out in the future uh, ac- across a larger number of individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, especially in Europe, but also in America to some extent, this population growth, growth has gone down, in Europe even reverted, and so uh, the chickens have come to roost, and, mm-hmm. uh, and that become uh, much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is that uh, the rest of the world is catching up. And uh, we had a phenomenal growth, uh, but uh, at a period in which the rest of the world was not growing very, very fast. Now, China and India and a lot of other countries are having a phenomenal growth, and we're growing very slowly. Uh, to some extent, this is great news because we, there are a lot of people out there who are poorer than us that become richer. So I think that that's, that's a very good thing. On the other hand, uh, our expectations of uh, constant uh, uh, growth in our income, etc., um, is probably a bit uh, inflated. And so we need to uh, cope with uh, reduced growth rates. And uh, coping with reduced growth rate means also uh, not having uh, ever bigger cars, ever bigger everything. And uh, one way in which people substitute a, a growth in income is by start to borrow more against the future. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, uh, the, the, the ditch we dig ourselves into. Yeah, we certainly have done so. And I was just talking to uh, my partner, Chen Lin, who was on the show before you came on, uh, just uh, traveled around Europe. And Chen comes from Beijing, and uh, he has a very, very strong work ethic um, and, um, and doesn't quite understand the cultural attitudes of Europe. Now, I, I sort of like that, uh, that siesta in the afternoon or that nice glass of wine at lunch or, or dinner and, and, the, and the easy life. I mean, who doesn't? But uh, is, that, is, is that part of it as well, that maybe the, the Europe that we in the West have had such a good time for so long that we've gotten spoiled a little bit? I think there is definitely an element of that. Yeah. And um, so where, where are we going to go from here? What is your what is your forecast for Europe right now and your native Italy? I'm actually very worried about uh, Southern Europe uh, as we speak. I think that uh, the crisis is uh, uh, getting worse every day and there is not a clear sign of a solution. Uh, and I have to say every way out is, uh, is quite costly. So there is not an easy one. And, and unfortunately, uh, the political dynamics is very slow. So, 
the fear is that by the time we figure out uh, a, a feasible political solution, uh, the situation has already collapsed. So um, the, only, the only hope of all this is that uh, the pain might help people see the light. And then uh, there is a pressure in Italy to actually change this, to try to cut down on privileges, to restore a, a more fair market economy as a result of the uh, impossibility of paying down the debt. So the pressure tower efficiency is coming uh, up in a, in a pretty ugly way, but at least uh, there is this silver lining. Yeah. In America, we have uh, some reasons, I think, to be quite optimistic in many ways, and we've had a very successful investor on the show uh, a, week, a couple of weeks ago named Rick Rule, who is very, very knowledgeable and has done extremely well in the energy sector. And he believes that uh, America can become energy independent as a result of a lot of the new technologies, the uh, you know, horizontal drilling and fracking and so forth. Any, any opinions on that topic? I have to say I'm not an expert in energy to comment on this, but I am very hopeful that uh, uh, innovation technology uh, can help uh, dramatically in improving our standard of living. The important thing is to let uh, innovation uh, have a role mm -hmm. and not sort of shackle it with a lot of uh, restrictions and uh, a lot of uh, uh, privileges that prevent new entry and new sort of uh, technology to come to market. Yeah, for sure. And one of Rick's points is that American and uh, Canadian, in this case, ingenuity has prevailed even in spite of the, uh, the hindrances that have been put in place in the market uh, by government's uh, regulations, the things you're talking about. What you're uh, at a university, of course, the famous Milton Friedman was there and very much a monetarist. Uh, do you consider yourself to be a monetarist? I consider myself uh, somebody who look at the real side of the economy more. I think that uh, the way you be, you become richer is by uh, producing more and in a more efficient way, not by spending more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's certainly not the attitude, though. The Keynesian economics has basically told us that we need to spend, right? We need to encourage people to consume uh and you had to have governments stepping in at times like these to to really arrest or to uh to supplement the demand the lack of demand from the private sector right and we tried this it seems to me in the 1930s not very effectively how doesn't seem to be working all that well again would you agree yeah you know in the in a very very short term i'm more open to that in the sense if you had a major collapse in investment due to some form of panic like immediately after the the lehman crisis uh having the government uh pay more, for example, in unemployment insurance uh, or support uh, uh, employment in the state sector because uh, the state was firing a lot of people uh, is a reasonable thing to do for a short period of time. What I don't think makes any sense is uh, three or four years down the line, start some pharaonic uh, projects that uh, will cost us uh, an arm and a leg and uh, would probably be inefficient and will burden us with more debt down the future. Yeah. We have only a minute or two left. I'd like to ask you, uh, we've had Ron Paul on the show a few times. We had Lewis Lehrman with him on advocates of, the, uh, of a return to a gold standard. I don't expect that you would favor that, but what I wonder uh, with respect to the audit, the Fed, Fed bill that Ron Paul has proposed, and uh, I think that legislation is being voted on or has been voted on in the Congress, what about audit the Fed? Should the American people be able to see what the Fed is doing when it sends $2 trillion to Europe, for example? I think it's useful to have some form of accountability. Uh, I think that uh, especially as the Fed is getting more and more involved into uh, something that resembles fiscal policy rather than monetary policy. I think that there are very sound economic reasons why a committee of independent people should set a monetary policy because uh, uh, if there is too much political pressure, you, we're going to have uh, too high an inflation on average. 
uh, there is not the same argument if the, um, the, the Fed is starting to act in a more fiscal way when it uh, starts to buy large quantities mm-hmm. of uh, uh, treasuries, when it tries to change the structure of uh, interest rates and so on and so forth. Yeah. That's really sort of a more fiscal policy than monetary policy. And uh, this country was born under the idea of no taxation without representation. So I think no fiscal policy without representation. Very well said. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you again, Professor Zingales, for being with us. It's always really a pleasure. Uh, I hope we'll hear about a new book that you're going to write sometime soon. Uh, Not soon, but uh, definitely I will. (laughs) Okay, very good. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with with, uh, Doug Groh. He's a good friend of mine. He's uh, also the senior research analyst and portfolio manager at the Tocqueville Gold Fund. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.euristargold.com for more information. Are you in a workplace filled with harmony or chaos? Is it your boss causing undue stress, or is it your coworkers? Maybe it's the work you're doing. Maybe it's the work environment. You need real solutions from someone who has over 25 years of workplace consulting experience. Tune in to Today's Workplace with Emery Mulling, your at-work expert. Emery and his guests will bring you expert solutions to the problems found in work environments today. Solutions you can apply right away to create a pleasurable workspace. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. 